following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, this morning we are looking in at Matthew chapter 11. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, uh, rest for the weary. Is anybody here weary? Some days, some days. Um, has anybody here got lots of energy? Good, because I've got some work that needs to be done. No. Uh, let's uh, look at uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. We'll start there by reading together from God's Word. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, This passage um, for me has always been challenging, not so much because of its meaning, but because of where it fits. And uh, uh, as we look at Scripture, it's always important not only to identify the meaning of the passage, but to see how it fits into uh, its, its context. And oftentimes we think that the gospel writers are just kind of throwing out these little like bombshells that are not connected or related, but actually they are. So we'll uh, see how this fits into the bigger context of chapter 11 and uh, in its message for us. Um, before we get to that, a question for you is, do you have what it takes? Right? Do you have what it takes um, to be successful or to achieve your goals or, your, your, or to fulfill your dreams, uh, to overcome the world's problems or to win? Okay, show of hands? No, just kidding. <laughs> right? uh, do you have what it takes? Well, it's interesting. Maybe I don't know how you feel about if you have what it takes, if you have enough, if you are enough to, to do those things. Um, but it's interesting that the world celebrates um, those who have what it takes, right? Uh, those who are smart enough, those who are strong enough, those who are determined enough or who are beautiful enough, uh, or if not beautiful enough, at least sexy enough in the world, Right? Uh, those who are powerful enough, uh, those who are wealthy enough to get what they want, to succeed, to accomplish great things and to live out their dreams. The world says uh, that's what it is about. And that's really what the world demands. Right? That's what the world, uh, the pressure that the world can put on us. And so we can feel that pressure. Am I enough? Right? Do I have what it takes? Um, to achieve my goals and dreams. Now, there's nothing wrong with being talented or smart or strong or beautiful. Uh, these are all gifts that God has given us, and we should be thankful for these gifts. Uh, but that's not what I'm really talking about here. I'm not talking about our abilities and our strengths. 
I'm talking about how we view them, their role or importance in our life. And the message that we get from the world or that we even tell ourselves, the message that if you, if you are enough, if you have what it takes, if you're strong enough and beautiful enough and smart enough, then you belong, right? The world applauds you. You fit in. You have worth. The world says, we like you. We celebrate you. Right? And it makes us feel good. But if you are not enough, right? if, you're, if you do not have what it takes, um, then the world says you are unimportant. You have no value. You are worthless. You do not belong. Right? Um, now, I don't know what your experiences with this has been, but I learned this lesson quite early on. And uh, I, was, I was pretty small for my age when I was a kid. It's surprising because I'm so tall now. But I was actually one of the smallest kids in my class. And I was also one of the youngest children in my class. So in grade school, um, I was this scrawny little kid. Um, and the result of that is that uh, when it came to pick teams for PE or gym or some sports activity, you know, the teacher would always call out the two biggest, the, the two kids who had what it takes, right? The two kids who had it, right? They got to be team captains and they would pick all the other kids. Well, because I was such a scrawny run, I was always picked almost last. And you know, when you're a boy and most of the girls get picked before you, it, it just hurts, right? And you're like, ah. And I knew I did not have what it, ta- what, it, what it took, you know, no matter how much I wanted it. I was not strong enough to, to, to measure up. So I had to find a different way to, to prove that I was enough, that I had what it takes. Well, when I was, you know, nine years old, I mean, what can a nine-year-old do? I couldn't do anything, and I couldn't get picked uh, on the sports team, so I just started making things up. And I became a very, uh, a very prolific liar. And I would just make up stuff, and I'd tell my friends of all this stuff I did on the weekends. You know, I went skydiving, or well, I don't think I said that. But I would make up these stories, and I would tell people these lies about, because I, I had to make them think I, ha- I was enough. I had what it, t- what it, take, what it would take. And, uh, of course, that only worked up through about fifth or sixth grade. By the time kids get to be 12, 13, they start going, you didn't go skydiving. Like, you can't tell me that, right? They get too smart. You can't, they don't believe your lies anymore. Well, uh, so, so that, you know, really does drive or motivate a lot about how we live life. We, 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 we pursue things uh, that we think will make us be and look successful or fulfill our big dreams. So we can post those big dreams on Facebook and people will see, oh man, they've accomplished something. They're living out their dream. Wow, that is so cool. I wish I could be them, right? And that's how we are living our life. And we don't do these things. We don't achieve success or dreams to give glory to God, but to prove to the world and to myself that I have what it takes, that I'm enough, that I have worth and value as a person. Um, and, and this thinking is so pervasive, and I think it's so, so much part of how we get shaped by the world that um, for me, and I think for most of us, it, it, it sinks into our understanding of God and how God looks at us and how God thinks about us. And for, for many, many years, I thought God was the same way, that God was up in heaven going, Tim, do you have what it takes? <laughs> like, I'm not sure you do, right? And, and uh, that God himself was... Um, was not convinced that I was good enough. And, of course, it didn't take much for me to feel that because I did not feel that I was good enough. 
And, and after all, the Bible, if we look at the Bible in a very superficial way, it can seem this way. Right? The Bible is, all, is this book about all these rules uh, that God asks us to measure up. Like, like, this is the standard. Can you measure up to this standard? And of course we don't. We fail. We fall short of that standard. So, uh, and then on top of that, God says that he judges those that don't measure up to that standard. And so if we don't have a, the proper understanding of Scripture, if we look at it just in a superficial way, uh, we can start to get this idea that God is looking at us saying, do you have what it takes? Do you measure up? If not, you're of no value to me. Like, I'll love you and I will value you if you can prove to me that you measure up, if you have what it takes. Um, and if not, he casts us off and he thumps on us just like the world does, Right? He won't love us if we don't measure up. Now, of course, theologically, we all know that that's not true. But at a very experiential level, that's how we can feel at a feeling level like God looks at us. And we can struggle with these feelings that I, I just don't measure up. I'm, I'm not good enough. And, and God knows it, and I know it, and the world knows it. And so, how can I solve that? What can I do to prove that I have what it takes? And unfortunately, a lot of people spend their whole life trying to find that thing, trying to prove themselves to the world and to themselves. Well, Jesus shows us in this passage that this kind of thinking is 100% off. Right? 100% off. This is actually the exact opposite of how God looks at us and how God thinks about us. God is, in fact, looking for the very opposite. God is not looking for people who have what it takes and who measure up. God is actually looking for people who know they don't have what it takes. He's looking for people um, who know they're nothing. Right? And that's what this passage is about. Uh, so let's look at it. Uh, again, let me bring in the context here. The context of chapter 11 that we've been looking at is Jesus is talking about the uh, persecution and the resistance uh, that, that the gospel will meet. Right? And, and uh, even though up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, things have gone very well and Jesus has attracted large crowds and people are flocking to hear and to see the miracles and there's huge crowds. Uh, if Jesus were uh, thinking, do I have what it takes? Jesus could say, man, I got what it takes, bud. Look at the crowds. Look at the people who are following me. And of course, Jesus does have what it takes because he's the son of God. But in spite of all that, Jesus starts warning his disciples that uh, it's going to start going downhill from here. That uh, people are going to start to reject him and his message. Uh, and in the passage just before this, he says, uh, as a result of that, because they didn't receive John, because they don't receive the Son of Man, uh, God, uh, Jesus calls down woes on, on, on these cities where he's been ministering. These cities of Galilee, where he's been doing all these miracles. And he says to them, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Can, can you, uh, you, he says, no, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. God warns them because they had not received him in spite of all the work and all the teaching and all the miracles. Because they had not received him, uh, judgment was going to come. And then Jesus turns to this uh, seemingly out-of-place 
thing. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's like, all right, that's kind of a, whoa, jolting. Like, here's judgment, but come to me and I'll give you, I'll give you rest, right? It seems a little not sinking. So let's see how these pieces fit together and what this is about. Um, and what, what we will see is that God is selective in his revelation, uh, and that's in response to, as we will see, uh, people's hearts. Right? God is calling down judgment on these, these peoples, uh, these, these cities, because they have rejected his message. Right? And so God's revelation to them becomes very selective. But at the same time, God's invitation is universal. Right? His invitation is universal. So let's look at these two things. First, God's selective revelation. Let me read verse 25 again. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Um, Let's talk about the wise, right? The wise. Uh, Jesus, uh, first of all, he says this as a prayer to his father, and it's the first time that we see Jesus addressing God so directly and intimately as father, and we'll see in a minute why that's important. But he's not just father, but he's Lord of heaven and earth, he's creator. Uh, and he says that he's, re- he's hidden these things. Well, what things? Uh, well, Jesus has been doing his miracles and teaching very publicly. Right? So Jesus hasn't hidden his miracles. He's done them in a way that everybody can see them. And he's been teaching in a way that's very public. So he's not been hiding his ministry. But what's hidden is the significance or meaning of what Jesus is doing. And for many, for, for those who are wise and, and, and intelligent, uh, God has hidden the, the meaning or the significance of Jesus' works to them. So they see it, they hear his teaching, but it goes right over their head. They don't get it. It doesn't mean anything to them, right? Um, he's hidden it. God has hidden these things, the understanding of these things from their vision and from their eyes. Um, and, and the smart and the intelligent here would be uh, uh, probably not every single person in these cities, but it's the people who, like the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who thought they had what it takes. Right? These are the people who think they are good enough who think they're smart enough, who think they know the Bible well enough and who are spiritual enough, that they don't need Jesus. That's who he's talking about here. People who feel uh, so self-sufficient and so independent in their own wisdom and their own ability that they are convinced they have no need of Jesus and his ministry. And, and God makes it very clear, he's not impressed with these kind of people. He's not impressed with their wisdom. He's not impressed with their intelligence. He's not impressed that they think they have what it takes. Because God knows better, right? He knows they really don't, no matter how much they think so in themselves. He's not impressed with their self-sufficient attitude and their independence, that they can live without God or His help. And so, so what God is saying here is that He's hidden it from people who feel like they don't need God's help, Right? God has, by his will, chosen to hide from them the significance and reality of what Jesus has done. And think about it. I mean, Jesus has done some pretty incredible things. He's raised people from the dead. Um, uh, If you knew that uh, somebody was raised from the dead, wouldn't you be thinking, like, I think this is a God thing, right? 
But it just went by these people, right? So it's interesting in John later, when, uh, in the Gospel of John, right before the cross, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and there's indisputable proof, and they see Lazarus standing there, and it says that the religious leaders were angry and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Like, that's not, the, that's not how I would respond, right? That doesn't seem like the normal, logical thing. You just raise somebody from the dead. I want to kill you. Um, but it's because their eyes were blinded. God had hidden the truth from them. And they didn't understand that it was a revelation from God uh, showing that Jesus was God's Son. Right? They didn't see it. They were blind. And they were blind not because of their own foolishness, but in fact, because of their own wisdom. And because God... God hid, hid it from them. God made sure that they didn't understand what it means. But at the same time, he says, he's hidden it from uh, the wise and understanding, but he's revealed them to little children. Uh, little children. God has made it clear. He has revealed himself to little children. And the word there that's translated little children in many Bibles is actually a word for infants. For very, very small, young, even, even newborns. Uh, what's the difference between uh, a one-month-old and somebody who's got their Ph.D., right? Well, the, 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 the differences are extreme. The one-month-old doesn't even know their name, right? They don't know anything. They don't know where their food comes from. Well, they, they, maybe they're figuring out it comes from mom, right? But they really don't know anything, they are absolutely, completely helpless. Right? And that's the picture, the contrast that Jesus is showing here. Those who think they've got it all together, they've got what it takes, versus the absolutely weakest, helpless little baby. And Jesus says he's revealed himself to people who are like that. Okay, not only to infants, but to those who are infant-like, who, sh- who have the characteristics of somebody who knows they are helpless that they know they don't have what it takes. They know they're not enough. And they know they need help. That's the exact kind of people that Jesus has chosen to reveal uh, God to. And, and who God has opened up their hearts and minds to see and to understand. Right? So, uh, one other significant thing we need to see in this passage is that there's really only one way to know God. Uh, in verse 27... Jesus continues on, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Uh, And what's handed over here is probably everything, authority, power. But in this context, most specifically, understanding, truth, the the knowledge of who God is and, and of his purpose and plan for the universe. These things have been handed down or passed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And here's the amazing truth that we have to uh, keep in mind. We cannot know God apart from His revelation. Right? Science thinks, scientists think they're so smart because, uh, and they think they can prove that there's no God because there's no scientific experiment out there that can make God show up. And the reason for that is that God lives outside of creation. He lives, he's transcendent. He lives outside of the realms of science and the universe. Right? And the only way that anybody can ever know God is if he makes himself known. If he somehow shows up and reveals to us in this world who he is. Otherwise, it's impossible for anyone to ever know God. 
And, and Jesus says that he is the ultimate revealer of God because he has a unique relationship with God as father and son. Right? Jesus existed throughout eternity with the Father as a triune God. And Jesus is uniquely qualified to tell us what God is like and who he is. And so Jesus becomes uh, the most clear, specific revelation of God we can know. Um, that doesn't mean there's not other ways that God reveals himself. The Bible says he's revealed himself through creation. And every Sunday we get to see these beautiful trees in the background. And a, a good reflective thinking person can look at those green trees and they can say they just form themselves randomly by accident through evolution. And you could believe that. Or um, maybe less intelligent people would say, no, there had to be a creator who, who designed and made those trees. Right? There had to be a creator who uh, was, was wise enough and purposeful enough to, to design them. So that's general revelation. And you can know something about the fact that there's a creator God out there, but you can't know a lot about him. Right? I can't know a lot about what God's like by looking at that tree. I can only know that there was a God who made it. Uh, likewise, God's revealed himself in Scripture. And there's a lot you can know uh, about Scripture. But the Jewish religious leaders are good examples why Scripture by itself are not enough. And the reason is this. All Scripture is ultimately about who? Well, God, but also about God revealing himself through Christ. And the Jews demonstrated that they didn't really understand the Old Testament because they didn't understand Jesus. You can't really understand the Bible until you understand it through the person of who Jesus is and how he reveals himself. So it's vitally important for us, if we're going to know God, that we know him through Jesus. He is the ultimate revelation of who God is. We, we know him through Christ. There is no other way. Right? There is no other way, uh, it says in Acts, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. No other way you can know God. John says, uh, Jesus says in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that is the revelation, the way, the path that we can know God. And Jesus says here that he knows the Father and the Father knows him and, and that he chooses to reveal the Father to, 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 to those he will, right? to those he, he wants. Um, and unlike the Father, he chooses to reveal the Father to those who know they need him to those who are weak and helpless. Um, so what, what exactly is this revelation and, and, and how does it prove to help us? Right, the, the title of the message is not about revelation, but it's about uh, rest for the weary. So how does this revelation, how does Jesus coming offer to us help and rest? Uh, well, he continues on. And again, this seems like a little bit of a shock, a, a, a hard turn off the main path, but he's really continuing in the same path. Right? When, he, when he says in verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, and and I, I would put it this way, Jesus is contrasting two great truths. The one truth is that God's revelation is specific and limited. God does not reveal himself universally to everybody. And for those of us who are uh, very democratic-minded, feel like this is some kind of great injustice because we feel like in a free and democratic world, God should just put himself out there and if we choose to find him, we can. 
Uh, but that reverses the order of creator and created. Right? God is creator, and uh, he chooses who he's going to reveal himself to. But that doesn't mean he doesn't invite everyone. And in verse 28, we see Jesus saying, come, come. Right? And his invitation is universal to all. Uh, but, but likewise, we see that not everybody will come. That there are certain kinds of people who are predisposed to come to Jesus. Certain kinds of people who are prepared and ready to come to Jesus. Uh, and others who won't. And the kind who are prepared, who are ready to come to Jesus, are those who recognize uh, their, their need for him. Right? Who know they need him. Those who are uh, uh, laboring and tired and heavy laden. Um, so what is this burden? Jesus says, come to me, you who are laboring and heavy laden, who are under a burden. And these are words that speak of, of being tired and weary because of your labor and hard work. Uh, think of a person working in a factory uh, 12, 13, 14 hours a day who at the end of the day is exhausted by their labor. Or a person uh, carrying a very heavy burden that's crushing them. Uh, a huge load, a huge pack that, that they're struggling to carry. So what exactly is this burden? What is this labor or this toil that's wearing people out? Well, Jesus is not talking here about literal burdens or physical burdens or literal labor. Uh, he's talking about something else. And... Uh, Many people, and th throughout uh, maybe church history, a lot of people have thought Jesus was talking here about the burden of keeping the Old Testament law. And then what Jesus is saying here is, come to me, who are, you who are worn out by trying to keep the laws of the Old Covenant. Um, uh, and that would, I think, be one of the ways people could be worn out, but I don't think Jesus has that specifically in mind in this passage. And the reason is that there's really nothing in the context that points to that. But there's nothing in this whole uh, immediate two or three chapters that talks about keeping the law or the struggle of keeping the law. Um, it doesn't really fit. And, and, and on top of that, um, uh, we saw in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus doesn't, did not come to lift the law off of us. In other words, when, when we come to Christ, he doesn't cancel out the law and we live only by grace. Instead, we saw in the Sermon on the Mount that he, he, he draws us to the true purpose of the law, which is not to keep it at an external level, but to keep the true heart and purpose of the law, which is to really actually love people. Now, which is easier, to keep the external, outside, peripheral things of the law or to actually really love people? <laughs> uh, I think it's harder to actually really love people. Like, it's easy to have the little checklist of doing this and doing that. Really loving people is harder. And so, if anything, I think uh, the law that Jesus puts on us is actually harder. Harder, right? And so, for that reason, I don't think Jesus is talking about here about a contrast between law and grace. Uh, instead, he's talking about being really worn out and weary um, by, by life, Right? The context here is those who choose, uh, who Jesus chooses to reveal the Father who know they need help. But that's the context here. Those who know they're not enough. Those who know they don't have what it takes. And uh, if, 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 if you, if you kind of connect with what I'm saying about feeling this pressure to, to have what it takes to prove yourself, 
That is exhausting. Right? If you're living your life that way, if you're living your life trying to measure up, trying to succeed, trying to prove to the world and yourself and to God that you're smart enough and you're strong enough and you're beautiful enough and you're fulfilling your dreams and you're accomplishing great things and you're saving the world, that's exhausting, right? Unless you're Superman. And guess what? We're not. And so uh, I think Jesus is talking about, uh, here about all the things in life that wear us out. The toiling and laboring and burdens that we carry uh, and make us we- weary. Um, struggling and battling all of this. Uh, the need to be successful. The need to uh, succeed. The need to deal with every relationship. The, deal with, uh, the need to deal with every problem in life. Right, that life keeps throwing things at us. Um, it is exhausting. And we can feel the weight of the world's problems. And certainly if you look at the news, you know, it's discouraging. And viruses and racial conflicts and divisions and hatred. And um, I think it's, uh, it's interesting that as human beings, we want to fix it. And I see people putting up their solutions on social media I know the problem. I know how to solve this, right? Because we, we want to do something about it. The reality is, uh, it's beyond our control, right? And so it's a burden. We, carry, we feel the burden and the weight of trying to fix the world's problems and deal with the world's problems. And then, of course, there is the burden and weight of our own sin and guilt and broken relationships and the, own bro- the brokenness that our sin brings into our own life. That our own life oftentimes is a wreck and a mess. And, and that can be a burden. And it can wear us out. And if we feel like we've been battling these things uh, and carrying the weight of that, uh, we may resonate with these words, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, you who are weary and worn out. And Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Right? I will help you lift off that burden and, and give you rest from the toil. And not just rest, but he says, rest for your soul. Rest, for your, rest of the very deepest parts of your being. Rest means that we stop laboring and toiling. There is a cease, ceasing from this striving to succeed. It doesn't mean we stop from all activity. We know that God has work for us. In fact, he calls us in a minute to take up a yoke. And a yoke is an object of labor, not of, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't wear the yoke when you go swimming at the beach, right? It's not, it's not a, a floaty. Take on my floaty. Go hang out in the pool. No, it's a, it's a yoke. There is work. But it's light work. It's manageable work, right? There is rest because it's not uh, killing us. It's not crushing us under its load. So, so rest is, so I believe this. This is what it is. The, it is the rest of accepting, and this is what Jesus is talking about here, the rest of accepting that I do not have what it takes, but Jesus does. Right? That's kind of the message of this passage. There's an amazing rest that coming to this reality and this realization in life. I do not have what it takes. I will never be enough. I will never prove to anybody that I'm good enough, that I'm strong enough, that I'm smart enough. And that's not the goal. 
The goal is to realize I'm not good enough, but Jesus is. Jesus is enough. He has everything that I need. He has all the wisdom and all the power and all the strength to, to help me live life successfully according to His purpose and His design and His plan. Not, not to the world's standard, not what the world says is success, but to God's intended purpose for my life. Jesus is enough. He is exactly what we need and He is all that we need. Um, and so there's, there's rest in, in, in finally giving up uh, proving to myself that I have enough. Okay? There, there's something very restful in knowing I'm never going to get there. It's never going to happen. Right? Everybody just take a deep breath and go, ah, I'm not enough. Ah, I'm not enough. Right? And that's okay. Because Jesus is absolutely enough. Right? And he is offering himself to us. His invitation is, come. Come, let me help you. Let me carry the load. Let me show you how to live life differently. Uh, the rest comes in doing all of life through faith in his name. Uh, the best picture I have of this actually comes from... Uh, the, the Gospel of Acts in chapter 3. If you remember in that story, uh, Peter is going into the temple and there's a blind man, uh, a cripple, not blind, cripple, begging at the entrance of the gate. And uh, he's, he's asking Peter for alms. He says, please, alms for the poor. And Peter doesn't have any money. So Peter says to him, uh, gold and silver I don't have, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And instantly the man jumps up and he starts leaping and shouting and praising God and going kind of ballistic all through the temple. And every day, every person would enter passing by this guy. So they knew this guy. And here all of a sudden he is healed. right? And um, it, it creates a lot of a stir and commotion. And the people gather around Peter and they want to know how Peter did this. And notice Peter's response. In, in chapter 3, verse 16, Peter says... Um, he talks about who Jesus is, and he says, you know, by the way, the Jesus you killed, that Jesus, <laughs> that's the one I'm talking about. Uh, by his name, and by faith in his name, Jesus has made this man strong, uh, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health. And he starts off, he says, Men of Israel, do, do, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. As we didn't do this, Jesus has done it. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, no, we're not trying to live life by our power, by our smarts, by our brains, by our insight and wisdom. But it's learning to walk and do life by his power and by his strength. So how does this work? Um, well, Jesus gives us three simple commands. They're, they're actually commands. They're uh, very clear instructions for how we do this. And the first thing is we come to him. We come to Jesus. Uh, when we are struggling, when we are desperate, we, we go to him. It's just simple and easy. We go to him with our need and our brokenness and our weakness. And, and we, we, we go seek help from him. Come to me, he says. Jesus invites us. Uh, and this is, this is what's amazing. Doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, all of you who finally have your life together, you come to me and I'll help you out. 
No, Jesus says, come to me, you who don't have your life together. That's who I'm looking for. Those are the people I choose to reveal the Father to. Come to me. It means giving up the self-sufficiency and independent attitude that we live with and realizing instead our desperate need for Christ, our desperate need for him. Second thing, he says, uh, take up your yoke. I mean, your yoke. Take up my yoke. Take up my yoke. Put on your shoulders, put on your back, my yoke. And a yoke is a picture or a symbol of servitude. And it's actually a symbol of bondage. And, and so Jesus is saying, you need to come to me, but you need to come to me and submit to me as master over your life. Right? You need to let me take control of your life. Right? You don't get to come for me to, for, for help and still get to be in charge of your own life. It doesn't work that way. You need to come to me and submit to him as Lord and Master. There's no other way for life to work. Hey, Do you all understand that? We can't make life work if we're driving. <laughs> um, so here, here's an ex- ex- example. Imagine you're a pilot of a commercial air flight if they ever start flying again. <laughs> and um, you're flying to a destination. I have a friend who's an air traffic controller. And he says that when you, when you give the flight coordinates, the, the direction they're supposed to point the airplane, he says if you're off by even one degree because airplanes fly so far, if you're off by even one degree, they can miss their destination by hundreds of miles. Hundreds of miles. Like if in the United States and they're supposed to go to Florida, they could end up in New York, like many states away, by just one degree off, right? So imagine the pilot saying, when the air traffic controller gets on and he says, okay, point your airplane in this direction at coordinate 182 uh, degrees, and the pilot says... Who are you to tell me what to do? You're not flying this plane. I'm flying this plane. I'm the captain. I'll do whatever I want. And he's up there in the wild blue yonder, and he looks at the horizon, and he just sees all this nothing, and he says, I think I'm going to go that direction, because I'm in charge. I can go wherever I want, right? And he goes where he wants. Is he going to get to his destination? Not. Not. Not ever, right? Not ever. He'll run out of fuel before he gets there. Because... It doesn't work that way. But how many of us live life the exact same way? We're convinced that it's not going to work unless I'm in control. But we don't even know where we're going, right? And there's the horizon out before us, and we just randomly pick a spot. And we think, well, I'm in control. Surely I'll get there. And it doesn't work that way. We need somebody who's smarter and wiser and who knows where we're actually supposed to be going to guide and direct us. Right? And so we must submit to him. And lastly, we must learn from him. Just take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Real briefly, what Jesus wants to teach us, simply, he wants to reveal to us the wonder and glory of God. Right? That's, that's what that preceding passage was about that he wants to reveal the Father to us. Like, that's a pretty good deal, to know a God that can be known in no other way than through Jesus' revelation to us. That's ultimately what he wants to teach us, who God is and what God's purpose and plan is, how amazing he is and his never-ending, unfailing, perfect love for us. 
We cannot know this love apart from Jesus' revelation to us. Now, we can think about it in our head and we can have great theological definitions of it. I could give you um, the best explanation of God's love, but you cannot know God's love apart from Jesus revealing it to you personally. Right? We don't need information. We need him to teach us and reveal to us uh, uh, who God is. Right? Uh, but also he wants to show us how to live life differently. Right? Not according to the wisdom or plan of men, but according to his purpose and plan. And it's very different. It is worlds apart from uh, the wisdom of, of human beings. And he wants to show us how to trust him more. How to live by his power instead of relying on my own strength. Uh, how to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection. Uh, he wants to teach us those things. Uh, but, but there's another part to it. How do we learn from him? Uh, how is it we come and be a student of him? It would have been so much easier if Jesus was still here. And Jesus could come preach every Sunday and we could just sit and learn from him. But we can't do that. He left. But he did not leave without his word and his spirit. Right? So we learn primarily through his word. Right? If you want to learn from Jesus, you must be in his word. There's no other way. Right? Uh, he, he teaches us through his word. And again, it's understanding his, his word through knowing who Jesus is. But we have to be in his word, studying it, seeking to know Christ and what he reveals. Secondly, though, we need to, we need, uh, God, Jesus reveals himself also through his spirit. He's poured out his spirit in our life as a guide and a teacher who will lead us into the truth. Right? So we don't do this with our own intellect. It's a spiritual discipline of listening and letting the Holy Spirit uh, guide us and speak through God's word. Uh, thirdly, we learn through a spirit of humility and weakness. It's interesting. Jesus says, I, I'm a teacher who is gentle and humble and lowly, right? Kind. I, uh, one of my friends told me when he was, this was a long time ago, like a long, long time ago, 30 plus years ago. And he said when he was here learning Thai, he was in his early 20s, and his teacher would hold a ruler in her hand. And every time he said the wrong thing, she would smack him on the knuckles. <laughs> that is not a gentle teacher, Right? That's not how Jesus works, right? He's not up there with a ruler waiting for us to mess up so he can smack us. He's gentle and humble. He's kind. He's patient. He's patient, right? When we mess up, he doesn't yell and scream at us. He's understanding and he's careful. And because of that, we need to go with him in the same kind of spirit, a spirit of gentleness and humility, right? Of, of lowliness, not with our wisdom and our capacity and our, I can do this, but humbly. Uh, with the same spirit that he comes to us. Right? So those are three, th three things Jesus calls us to do, to come with a spirit of dependence, to submit to him as Lord, and, and to give him control over our life, uh, and to learn from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing promise of uh, rest, rest for our souls, of a life where the burden we have to carry and the work that you've given us is not overwhelming or exhausting, but it's a yoke that is light, that it fits well, it's, it's even comfortable, and a burden that is light. 
and easy to carry. Uh, but it's a, a work that has great meaning and purpose. And Lord, I thank you that it's not about how capable we are. It's not about us proving that we have what it takes. Uh, it's about us trusting Jesus, the one who is everything. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to have eyes to see and also to see this warning that uh, that you've hidden yourself from those who think they have it all together, who are convinced they don't need you. Lord, help us to guard against our hearts that would be proud and self-sufficient. Um, and give us, Lord, hearts that are humble, willing to learn, and eagerly allowing you to be Lord and Master over our life, knowing that you want what's best for us. You want to give us rest for our souls. And, and so we thank you. We thank you for who Jesus is and for his life that he gave for us so that we could know God and um, be your children. And we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.